Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two cogs of pedantry. <laughs> I, I'm Alex Heigl. Your bums of banality, your punks of pedantry, your old sluts of just too much trivia. That's good. Anyone? No, Anyone? No, Thank the, you. Last, the last one was good. I should go okay, with that. And my name is Jordan. And Jordan. As you may have suspected from that intro, today we're talking about my favorite Christmas song of all time, an oh. episode dedicated to the dearly departed Shane McGowan, uh, the mastermind behind one of the greatest Irish punk bands, bands period, the friggin' Pogues. Uh, Shane McGowan defied just about every odd in the book to live until uh, the relatively ripe age of 65 and died this November, having cast an enormous shadow in the worlds of Irish and punk music and music in general. Uh, tell me about your relationship with uh, the Pogues, or more generally, uh, Irish. The Irish. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, tell, I me mean, about your, <laughs> tell me about your relationship with the Irish. The Irish. I, know, I can see you feeling quite a kinship with the Irish. I know you and I are both of Italian Sicilian heritage, and in some ways I see them as related cultures in that they both surrender to emotions and have yes. a sense of fatalism that – I almost find noble in, in the same way that I find toxic male stoicism noble. There's a certain I, – I know it's probably not healthy for the soul, but for some reason I can't shake the sense that it's admirable. <laughs> I love that. I can't shake the sense that it's admirable. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, an irreverence towards pain and depression. And wasn't it Freud who said that the Irish were the only people impervious to Impervious to analysis. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think that – that whole sense extends to their view on self-destruction and death, the Irish. And there's a perfect overlap with this song 
and in the performance at Shane McGowan's funeral earlier this yeah. week, which hurt. It was so deeply <laughs> sad, but so incredibly joyous. It's the only funeral I've seen where people were literally dancing in the aisles, which says a lot for the Irish and Shane McGowan and this amazing song. Yeah, I, I was, we were talking before we started a uh, recording, I was talking about this dense book came out in uh, 1960, I think, from um, oh wow, uh, uh, MIT, or 70, sorry, from MIT Press, uh, called Beyond the Melting Pot, about the different sociological and cultural uh, similarities and differences, but, but more about the focusing on the similarities uh, about black people, Puerto Rican people, uh, Jewish people, Italians, and the Irish in New York City. And, you know, it is fascinating, the different overlaps. And it, the book does focus a lot on the particular, um, as you said, irreverence towards death and sort of <laughs> I love that. Um, combined fatalism and joie <laughs> de vivre of, of the Irish and the Italians. So I grew up with a few people of Irish descent, my extended family, and we weren't really gathered around the, the table singing the rare old Mountain Dew. But I did always love Irish music. And my first gateway into that was um, Flogging Molly, actually, the band Flogging Molly. Um, with not Dropkick Murphys? Well, no, because we, I, yeah, Dropkick Murphys came up, but I was like, this, this band sucks. Um, I mean, they don't <laughs> suck at the risk of angering the Irish. Uh, although their best song is a Woody Guthrie cover. Um, yeah, their punk is too dumb and their Irish is too... I'm not going there. Strong. Uh, <laughs> Is that that I, I was going to say, I was going to say racist because there's a lot of oh. skinheads that love the dro dropkick Murphys. But um, anyway, no, uh, flogging Molly takes the whole traditional Irish thing like much further than dropkick Murphys. And in fact, probably the biggest knock against them is that they are kind of just like a tighter pogues. <laughs> Um, the, the best thing about that band was that, uh, the lead singer had been in two different metal bands before he formed Flogging Molly with guys from Motorhead and Crocus, like, like bigger thrash bands. Um, and he, he writes all his lyrics on a typewriter from 1916, which is the year of the Easter uprising in Dublin. But then going backwards from them, I discovered the Pogues and they've just always been at the top of the heap for me, not just because of, uh, Shane's incredible personal magnetism and and uh ludicrousness but uh you know the guy's a hell of a songwriter man i mean he just has this incredibly deft hand at writing these little thumbnail character sketches that will just level you and um even though he threatened to become one of them at many many points um I'm imagining the dissolute tale of two New York drunks <laughs> bickering away their Christmas isn't the sort of tune that you enjoy over eggnog. <laughs> but am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I mean, I thought it was very telling that one of the uh, one of the many people who paid their tribute to uh, to Shane McGowan on social media was Bruce Springsteen, who I think yeah. paid him a, a visit recently. And I see a lot of similarities between their ability to, as you say, paint these beautiful little portraits, these little capsule portraits of of these characters, usually characters who are trying to hold on to hope. In in a fairly hopeless situation, I, I have to say I don't know a lot of the Pogues' music, unfortunately, which is probably good for me because now I have a lot to explore. But uh, what I do know of it, that seems to be a major through line, and it's something yeah. you see a lot in Bruce too. And I think that's why it probably hits a lot of people. A lot of people in times of trouble 
can relate to those characters. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful song. I didn't realize that was your favorite Christmas song. I can. Oh, yeah. I, I, why? May I ask? I mean, and, and that's not. A, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not challenging you on it. I'm curious though. Um, I think it's like the only Christmas song, other than maybe like the original version of "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas," which is so damn sad. Um, With the that, post-apocalyptic verse about. Like, yeah. Yeah. It may be our last. Uh, yeah. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be our last. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the only Christmas songs that gets it. There's such a gloss over, with the exception of your really thuddingly on the nose stuff like uh, John Lennon. I think that there are the genre of Christmas music uh, glosses over the the pain of the holiday uh, for so many people, and <laughs> I like the fact that there are Christmas songs that instead of may- being neutral on it. <laughs> dial it 180 degrees back and make it thoroughly more depressing. <laughs> like, rather than saying, well, you know, this is hard for a lot of people, it just swings 180 degrees around to get ready to sob. Uh, another great one is Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis by Tom Waits. <laughs> I mean, okay, you and I are so far around the circle that we yes. actually are very close to each yeah, other, yeah, yeah, even yeah. though we, you know what I mean? But we, we approach things a different way. And everyone knows who listens to this show often that I'm a gigantic Beatles fan, and it's probably unhealthy how much I view the world through, you know, through a Beatle lens. But there's a certain dichotomy in people that I've noticed. You could call it optimists and pessimists, but I yeah. call it Lennon and McCartney. And it's probably best illustrated mm-hmm. through their Christmas songs. You've got John Lennon's Happy Christmas, War is Over, basically indicting listeners for not doing anything to help end war and make the world a better place. And then you've got Paul's Wonderful Christmas Time, which is the, the worst song I've deep yeah. exhale. I I, 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 well, I I like it. Yeah, you gotta plug in the TikTok. Yes. It's Christmas Day. People are dying. Go f*** yourself. It's Christmas time. Get out the wine. Uncle Jim's in his favorite jumper. Uncle John's in his favorite jumper. <laughs> But something I find interesting about Lennon and McCartney is that they both endured a incredible tragedy when they were young. Their mothers died when they were teenagers, and it made them both into the people they became. John, very wounded and very angry, and I think his music connects with people for that reason because he was that vulnerable and that and, and so in pain people see their own pain in that and also i think there's people listening who you know almost want to comfort him in a way and then there's someone like paul who is okay i went through that i made it through i survived and i'm going to celebrate all the little things in life now because I know how bad it can be and it makes all the good things, even if they seem inconsequential, so much more sweet. And that's, I, I mean, you, again, you can call that pessimism and optimism. You can call it any number of different things. I think you have a touch of the John Lennon. I think I have a touch of the, of the, of the Paul yeah. in that yeah. sense. I just think it's interesting that how, how such a similar trauma at an early age made those two men s- such opposite people. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of people, how they respond to pain and grief. And it's something that comes out around Christmas time. And the great thing about the Irish is that you don't need two of them to get that. <laughs> but I mean, to answer your question, I prefer the Paul McCartney, yeah. the Beach Boys, the Phil Spector Christmas album type stuff. There's a whole cottage industry of like really sad 
emotionally lewd Christmas <laughs> songs. They're just so sad. I mean, there's okay. There's a list. I was trying to remember some of them. I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind, other than Fairy Tale of New York, is um, Christmas Shoes. I think it's called. I don't know. I don't know Christmas Shoes. Is it like a for sale Christmas shoes never used? Yeah, it's like something about. I, I'm trying to remember. There's like. I mean, the first thing that comes up is uh, the uh, young. It's the it's the TV movie summary starring Rob Lowe. Is the first thing that comes up. A young boy tries to get a pair of Christmas shoes for his dying mother because she's going to meet Jesus that night. That's right. She's going to die that. She wants Mama to look good for Jesus that night. So that that's that's devastating. There's Marvin Gaye's "I Want to Come Home for Christmas," which is from the point of view of a prisoner of war. Oh, yeah, because his brother was right, which inspired uh, yeah. what's going on. I'll be on for Christmas, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Do they know it's Christmas time by Band-Aid is super depressing. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? The Everly Brothers, Christmas Eve Can Kill You. Do you know the song? No, I don't, but that sounds incredible. It's, uh, it's a hitchhiker warning about freezing to death while looking for a ride on Christmas Eve. Jesus. Uh, I know this is good. This is good fodder for, for my playlist. Yeah, there's Nat King Cole's The Little Boy That Santa Claus Forgot. Uh, Let's see what else we got. There's Amy Mann's I Was Thinking I Could Clean Up for Christmas. Uh, Dwight Yoakam has a song called Santa Can't Stay, where uh, kids are seeing their drunk father dressed as Santa fighting with their mom and her new boyfriend. Yeah, but that's country music. That doesn't count. (laughs) They're already like so predisposed to maudlin horseshit. I could see you liking John Prine's Christmas in Prison. Yeah, I mean, anything by John Prine, I'm sold. <laughs> you just had to say that. Prince, Prince oh, another lonely, lonely Christmas. Christmas. Yes, yeah, that, that song, song kind of, rules. That yeah, because, of the, because of the, the a very deft Shane McGowan-esque touch of the fact that the guy gets oh. tanked on banana daiquiris. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Prince. It's so amazing. Because that was, it was her favorite drink, right? So he, uh, yes. yeah. Oh, so good. All right. Well, folks, add all of those to your playlists while you listen to us talk about Fairytale New York for however long. From the song's origins as a duet between a soon-to-be-departed member of the Pogues to the actually literally Christmas in July recording session to the <laughs> quasi-mysterious death of Kirstie McColl. Here's everything you didn't know about the Pogues and Kirstie McColl's Tale of New York. Sadly, we don't have time to get into the biographies of every single Pogues member, but in honor of, uh, of Shane, we're going to do a quick thumbnail sketch of him. McGowan was fittingly born on Christmas Day in 1957, although it is a massive irony that one of the greatest Irish songwriters of all time was actually born in Kent, in England. Uh, while his parents the most were... English of cities. Yeah. And the only way it could be better if it was one of those like Stokewell-upon-Trent-Thames places. <laughs> Um, Beans upon toast. Yeah. <laughs> His parents were their visiting relatives, and uh, and Shane just had the poor luck to be born in England, the place he despised all his adult life. <laughs> was it Churchill born in America in a similar reason? Like his mom happened to be traveling and, and was born you know, here? For all my like middle-aged man tendencies, like World War II historianism is not one of them. I don't know a single damn thing about Winston Churchill other than his grossness. In terms of like cigar and alcohol intake, and so that is incorrect. Grapes. Yeah, I am incorrect. Oh? oh, he wasn't born in America. Yes. Okay. Well, McGowan, get, how dare you bring up Winston Churchill in the episode <laughs> of Irish music? You, <laughs> you do later. Uh, yeah, you're right. They named uh, an album. They named an album after those quotes, right? That's true. That's true. An apocryphal quote. Anyway, 
Uh, McGowan subsequently spent his early childhood in Tipperary, Ireland, where he was supposedly drinking two bottles of Guinness each night to help him sleep by the time he was five or six years old. Jesus. Uh, his parents moved the family back to England when he was six, and he was apparently a tremendously smart kid, at least as far as uh, literature was concerned. Um, his dad was a, a very literate man and was uh, talk about how Shane was reading like James Joyce and Dostoevsky by the time that he was 11. And uh, I still haven't made it through any Dostoevsky. <laughs> um, I'll let I'll let you know if I do. Uh, maybe in the new year. Uh, but he won a literature scholarship to this very prestigious uh, school called the Westminster School. And he was expelled during his second year for possession of drugs. At the age of 17, he was institutionalized for six months in a psychiatric hospital. And then in short order, he found himself working at a record shop in London during the initial early wave of UK punk. He wrote a fanzine. And much like Forrest Gump, you can pick out Shane McGowan in a lot of like historical photos from the time. He's like in the front row at Clash gigs or something. And the most famous one is um, uh, there was coverage of a Clash show in 1976 where the bassist of another, of a soon-to-be bassist of another punk band named uh, Jane Crockford bit him in the ear or on the ear. And uh, this picture of of McGowan all bloody uh, made the papers the next day with the headline, Cannibalism at Clash Gig. And probably the only bad thing that Sweet Shane ever did in his life was form a band called the Nipple Erectors. Just the worst band. <laughs> all I mean, that I've James heard... Joyce, all that Dostoevsky yeah. came up with that. It's awful. It was shortened to the nips. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of like pub rock. It's a little more like um, rhythm and blues influence than, than like Pogues. Like Prinsley but, uh, Schwartz? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll never talk about that again. Uh, <laughs> like so many bands of their time, though, the Pogues came together via the Ramones. Uh, specifically, McGowan met Peter Spider Stacy, who played Tin Whistle, uh, and also everyone in the Pogues sang. So it's like they're all kind of co-vocalists. <laughs> tin um, Whistle? Oh, yeah, dude. Tin Whistle's like, a, it's like lead guitar in Irish music, you know? Okay, it's I so, will draw my chuckle. No, it's so fast. Like the, the, the stuff that they have to play on that little tiny thing, it's like the size of a drinking straw, is crazy. I mean, sure, it takes skill, but still. I play the tin whistle, like buddy. Don't go I'm home to. Bo- I'm going. I'm going home to Boston. Yeah, yeah wait. A I was going to say, don't uh, go yeah. home to Boston yeah. for smirching the tin whistle. Um, <laughs> so they, he met Spider Stacy Shane in the bathroom at a uh, Ramones gig in London in 1977. Famous meetings in bathrooms. Let's right. Yeah. Oh list. man, that's a good one. Um, Marvin Gaye and Barry Gordy. I think. I think Marvin Gaye like approached him in the toilet. We don't have time to keep pitching listicles. You, you, you have a disease, good. Um, <laughs> and I only have the conference room until 1230. Yeah. So they, the two of them formed an ad hoc band with the excellent name The Millwall Chainsaws uh, with a banjo player named Jem Finer. And then when the Nips broke up, McGowan brought that band's guitarist, James Fearnley, into the Pogues as an accordionist. By 1982, the band's core lineup came together with bassist Kate O'Riordan and drummer Al- Andrew Rankin. The band's name comes from an Anglicization of the Gaelic phrase for kiss my ass, Pogue Mahoney, uh, or Pogue Mahone. I think I gave it the Italian pronunciation. It's uh, <laughs> Spider Stacy read in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, and they pluralized the first word after complaints came up uh, around their early coverage from Gaelic speakers. 
who recognize the profanity of that name. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Pogues hit the London club scene hard and made a name for themselves by infusing traditional Irish music with the intensity of punk. One early TV appearance, for instance, featured Stacey hitting himself on the head with a drink tray as, quote, percussion. <laughs> <laughs> they opened for The Clash on a tour in 1984 and released their debut Red Roses for Me on the important early punk label Stiff Records that same year, which Elvis Costello has uh, an association with. Um, wasn't there, there was like a great t-shirt or slogan. If it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a f or something. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. The Pogues follow up 1985's Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash <laughs> is, as you mentioned earlier, an apocryphal quote from Winston Churchill about the traditions of the British Navy, <laughs> uh, really brought them into their own as songwriters, though it sowed the seeds of the dissolution of their core lineup when producer Elvis Costello married bassist Kate Riordan and left the band. 
Another blow was dealt in 1987 when Stiff Records folded, which brings us up to fairy tale. It's strange to me. This all occurred like maybe I say a solid 10 years after I thought it would because I always think of Stiff Records as being like a late 70s thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they lived on until uh, yeah, until around that until that year, um, mostly anchored. You know, it's the, the the accounting for record labels was so crazy back then because they would just lose bleed money until one person had like a big hit, and then they would just live on for another year. Um, but the Pogues are really. I mean, I want to highlight how how important it was for sort of the national identity of the Irish to have the Pogues hit when they did, uh, because there's a big thing in Ireland about people leaving. Right. Um, uh, Shane, at one point, has a quote about like in Ireland, you're either dead or you're in America or something <laughs> like that. And oh, wow. And in the at, around the time, you know, obviously the UK was going through this horrible wave of economic downturn. And there were a lot of Irish people, both in Britain and elsewhere, who were affected by this. And it was so important for not just them, but the British to see a band that was defiantly and very proudly Irish, bringing the kind of punk energy and vitality into traditional Irish music. You know, I mean, the biggest bands of the early UK punk are so damn British. I mean, like God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols, you know, the Clash, uh, they're very British bands. I mean, even though the Clash brought in a lot of different world music influences and stuff, but you know, to have the, a band like the Pogues out there with a, a named after a phrase in Gaelic that means kiss my ass, that's must have been so powerful for uh, Irish people in and out of the diaspora who were struggling with their identity in the midst of this economic downturn. Anyway, so there are competing accounts of how fairy tale got written. Shane McGowan has suggested that Elvis Costello made a bet with him that he wouldn't be able to write a Christmas duet to sing with Kate O'Riordan. While accordion player James Fearnley claimed that their manager, Frank Murray, suggested that they cover the band's 1977 song, Christmas Must Be Tonight, which is a dog song. Yeah, that song blows. And then the worst one is, have you heard, uh, I sent you the Robbie Robertson one from Scrooge, right? Where he's, he's doing it, he re-recorded it himself in this like quasi-Dylan, nasally, gravelly wheeze. Uh, with just the worst 80s production ever. Anyway, horrible song. Um, it was an awful song. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take our word for it. Yeah. Accordion player James Fearnley writes in his memoir, Here Comes Everybody, the story of the Pogues. We probably said, F*** that. We'll do our own. Um, this is, uh, mind you, in 1985, when conversations about a Pogues Christmas song started, because Fairy Tale ultimately took two years to write and record. It fits and starts. Sorry, I just had a whole awful bit in my head of uh, Shane responding to Elvis Costello's bet to write a Christmas duet with a uh, song to the tune of uh, Baby, It's Cold Outside about Northern Ireland. I really can't stay, baby, there's bombs outside. <laughs> Probably just for you. Uh, banjo player Jem Finer's version is that the song started as a more distinctly maritime feeling reel, as in the traditional Irish dance and not the fishing device, about a sailor missing his wife at Christmas. His wife, Jim Finer's wife, Marsha Farquhar, decided it was corny, and Finer said, fine, you give me an outline and I'll write a new song. 
He gave a more on-the-nose reading of her reaction to the outlet, the Irish Music Daily. She said her main point was that it was sentimental twaddle. Twaddle's a great word. (laughs) I love twaddle. Yeah. (laughs) So he redrafted the song from her basic plot line of, quote, a couple falling on hard times and coming eventually to some redemption. Although supposedly the song is, quote, a true story of some mutual friends living in New York. Do you know who that could possibly be? I don't know. I mean, perhaps wisely, they never. Yeah, them. yeah, that's true. <laughs> Shane McGowan took Finer's song and honed in on the dialogue elements. Though Kate O'Reardon's recollection was that McGowan wanted to sing it as a duet with a female studio engineer. Shane was courting her, O'Reardon said in March 2023, <laughs> talking to the Irish Broadcasting Company, RTE. RTE yeah. I, I don't know. It, it's the, the full name is in Gaelic, which is a not going to happen. Yeah, to try and pronounce. <laughs> when Shane's courtship with the female studio engineer failed to pan out, Jim Finer suggested that Kate O'Reardon sing it. She would later recall that she was trying to sing it like Ethel Merman, which, <laughs> needless to say, uh, didn't really fit the timbre and tone of the song. Then, of course, she left the band to be with Elvis Costello, and their relationship lasted 16 years, though she maintains they were never formally married. With the engineer and Kate O'Reardon out of the picture, the band pursued Chrissy Hind, who'd been part of the initial punk wave in London and was currently riding high as the lead singer of The Pretenders. That would have been wild if she duetted on Fairytale in New York. Yeah. I'm not sure she could have summoned the the requisite. The Irishness? Well, yeah. <laughs> She's from Cleveland, right? Yeah. Are there Irish in Cleveland? There have to be. <laughs> you know that Chrissy Hind... Uh, uh, after I think it was after David Bowie made his American debut in Cleveland, which is you know the, the capital of rock and roll in America. That's where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, and where Alan Freed did his Moondog shows yeah. or whatever they were. Um, Chrissy Hines somehow met him at the stage door, and she and her friends took him out to like a diner late at night after. The oh show yeah, you told me this in the, the yeah in the Bowie episode, one of the Bowie episodes. Yeah, I think that's so cute. I, yeah, I love that. I mean, she's she's obviously incredible, and at this point, she was riding high with the pretenders. But yeah, it, people, I think, I think because she's more, I can't imagine. Well, I think because she's more associated the um, with the kind of new wave stuff, people forget that she was like in on the ground floor of punk. You know, I don't London. think I really realized that. Yeah, she was living. I think she was living in London as early as. I knew she was there early, but I I guess I'm not familiar with super early pretenders or. Yeah, she formed the Pretenders in 78. So oh, wow. A year or maybe after Punk Broke in the UK. She moved to London in 73. Oh, damn. And then she worked, actually, at uh, the, the Malcolm McLaren Vivian Westwood store. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always kind of thought of uh, the Pretenders as, like, the British blondie. Yeah. More, more of a new wave than punk, even though they started yeah. in the punk era. That's really interesting. It's really fascinating how enmeshed she was with that scene. I mean... She uh, she knew the Sex Pistols and supposedly um, wanted to. Uh, it, it was in, involved in like a, a marriage scheme to get her green card with members of the Sex Pistols. She uh, auditioned for um, a band called that that would become a, this British punk band Nine Nine Nine. She uh, tried to start a group with Nick Jones from the Clash. You know, she was in the band that went on to become the Damned. Like, she's really very much like um, a kind of Forrest Gump figure in that she had all these connections to these first wave British punk bands and then went on to have her own incredible band, you know? That's so cool. I, yeah, I, I need to know more about her. I don't know. I don't know as much as I should. 
But she was not a good fit for Fairy Tale of New York. Ultimately, serendipity and nepotism collided <laughs> in the form of singer Kirstie McCall, who was married to veteran British producer Steve Lillywhite and was also managed by the Pogues manager, who you just wrote in capital letters as the Pogues manager. <laughs> that was an error. His name was Frank Murray. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, Kirstie McCall is fascinating, and, and she is a big blind spot for me, admittedly, but her life is fairly unique. Um, she was born to the British folk singer Ewan McColl, who was one of the prime movers and shakers of the 60s folk boom, not just as a writer, but as an archivist and collector of, of traditional uh, English, Irish, and Scottish ballads. And for instance, you know, the version of Scarborough Fair that Simon and Garfunkel uh, oh, yeah. got famous for came from his collection. I mean, he also wrote First Time I Ever Saw Your Face, which Roberta Flack oh, turned into a huge hit. And, and he also wrote Dirty Old Town, which was covered by the Pogues. Um, he was also an ardent communist and socialist. And in his last published interview, noted that he left the Communist Party because it was insufficiently communist. <laughs> <laughs> or the Soviet Union had become insufficiently communist in his eyes. Um, and he caused an, a, a scandal when... Pete Seeger's half-sister Peggy went over to the UK to help transcribe stuff for the Alan Lomax uh, folk song archive. And Ewan McCall fell in love with her. And despite being 20 years older at the time, uh, they got together. And also he was still married to Kirstie's mother. Um, so checkered past for him. <laughs> and this obviously impacted Kirstie's worldview and a lot of her writing. Uh, Mark Nevin, who wrote and performed with McColl in the late 80s and early 90s, told The Guardian, if you took most songwriters, put all their lyrics into a computer and pressed equals, you'd get two lines that sum up everything they'd written in a nutshell. Kirstie's would be, all blokes are going to lie, cheat, and let you down. <laughs> uh, and adding to this was the fact that her father, who was an ardent folk musician and commie, hated pop music, which was the route that she kind of went down. Uh, Billy Bragg, who... Um, Kirstie recorded a, a famous cover of his song, A New England, uh, said her dad was very scornful of pop music. He really didn't like it at all. Not just her doing it, but anyone doing it. So in spite, or perhaps because of, this parental disapproval, some of McColl's early experiences were in punk bands in London with names like Drug Addicts, with an X. Uh, <laughs> kind of rules. No, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Stiff Records uh, caught one of their early shows and hilariously declined to sign the band but uh, picked up Kirstie. But, you know, she just seemed to be struck by bad luck uh, through most of her career. A distributor strike that prevented copies of her first single from getting into record stores. Ooh. And she also uh, had powerful cases of stage fright that prevented her from being as heavy a live performer as a lot of other people. Um, she had a number 14 UK hit off her debut album on Polydor. I think that was the one that is called There's a bloke down at the chip shop thinks he's Elvis or something like that. But the label dropped her just as she was finishing her second album for them. So she went back to Stiff Records and her Bragg covered a New England with uh, extra verses that Billy Bragg wrote just for her and that he now performs when he does the song in her honor. That was a number seven hit in the UK. In the United States, Kirstie McColl achieved success when Tracy Ullman recorded her song They Don't Know which reached number eight on the U.S. Hot 100 in April 1984 and number two in the U.K. I love this song. Do you know this song? No, I don't. It, well, first of all, it sounds like, I, I have to say, I don't know Kirstie's version if she has one, but Tracy Ullman version, it sounds almost like a, 
like a Supreme song or a Shirelle song or mm. something. It's so, it's this wall of sound production. And the video features my beloved Paul McCartney in it because Tracy Ullman uh, appeared in Paul's movie. His sort of ill-fated screenwriting debut, Give My Regards to Broad Street, which no one liked. So he returned the favor and appeared in her music video, which I think is really cute. But yeah, check out that song. It's great. It's really catchy. McCall is on the track singing, which I didn't realize, uh, singing notes that Tracy couldn't hit. But this became something of an unfortunate lot for her when Stiff Records went bankrupt in 1986 and no one picked up her contract, leaving her unable to record under her own name. Why? Uh, the music industry. Shorthand, right, just okay, yeah, the music right, industry. Yeah. What, what's the Hunter S. Thompson quote about the music industry? Uh, uh, it's pig, a cruel and, shallow, cruel and shallow trench where trench. rats get rich, and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> wow. God, but all that bad luck, and then the way she died, which we'll talk about later, but dear yeah. Lord, what a tragic figure. Yeah. Uh, by the time Fairytale of New York became a hit, Christy McCall had contributed backing vocals for The Smiths, Simple Minds, The Rolling Stones, Robert Plant, Talking Heads, Big Country, and Annie Fring Lingstad of ABBA. I, uh, presumably just to live because she couldn't record under her own name, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah she's a wow. session vocalist. That's a hell of a lineup. Uh, and also because she was married to producer Steve Lillywhite, she even set the track sequence on U2's The Joshua Tree, which Lillywhite produced. I love that. She was just like, you know, here's how this should be ordered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All that work contributed to McCole's strengths as a vocalist. She supposedly had perfect pitch and learned the vocal harmonies to the Beach Boys' good vibrations when she was just seven years old, and that became one of her trademark party tricks. She would sing like a keyboard, Lily White told The Guardian of her layering technique. She sang without vibrato, and when you don't have vibrato, you have this wonderful glassy sound, which is how you can get that Beach Boys thing. That's incredible. That, I mean, the, arguably the most complex song the Beach Boys ever did in a seven-year-old parsed apart those harmonies. Yeah. Which had yeah, yeah, God yeah. knows how many double tracks and triple tracks. Wow. Billy Bragg recalled, she'd tell the engineer where to put the mics and she'd tell the producer what she was going to do next. She did this amazing thing where she'd do a take, then go around into a different position and do another take to layer up this amazing sound. Then, that's all. Let's go to the pub. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, she's such a blind spot for me. I really, I really owe her a deep dive after doing this episode. Um, but so anyway, as I've mentioned, Christian McCall and Steve Lillywhite were married, and she was being managed by the Pogues manager, Frank Murray. So one weekend, they took a stab at doing fairy tale with her singing the female lines. Took the whole weekend. They really worked on it, uh, especially uh, the phrasing of the song, which is already difficult because of just the way that it's written, the scansion and so forth. But uh, they were made considerably harder by Shane McGowan's delivery, which is so back on the beat as to almost be unusable. Uh, and then they sent it off to the band. The band had already attempted fairy tale at sessions in 1986, during which McGowan was attempting to craft songs out of his love for Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland. I love when these punk guys have a soft spot for the old timers, yeah. didn't? I mean, it's like the Sex Pistols doing my way. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how's Jim Morrison also wanted to sound like Frank Sinatra on on the bridge to touch me? I love that. I guess yeah. calling Jim Morrison a punk will probably mean that I'm banished from yeah. any punk. He was probably he was probably the most punk. He was, yeah he's probably the most punk out of all those Laurel Canyon psyops. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding I'm holding on to that. I'm holding on to that theory. We're gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna make a show out of that. I told my my parents about that the other night. My dad was like, he compared it to QAnon. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm, I'm. There's a there's an Instagram account I follow that's uh, their their slogan is loyal to the foil, as in tinfoil <laughs> hat. And that's I am. For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, this is it's just its third appearance in on the probably pod. as many weeks on the pod. Yeah, it keeps coming up. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dave McGowan, a uh, the late Dave McGowan, a, a journalist who, I, I don't mind saying, trafficked in conspiracy theories, wrote a very compelling and interesting book called Strange Scenes in the Canyon about his theory that the Laurel Canyon music scene was a psyop to basically undermine... Uh, meaningful change and radicalism in America. Interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And all true. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize this. I This makes me love this song so much more. Shane McGowan had never been to New York when he wrote the lyrics to this song. Yeah. The band had taken a copy of Sergio Leone's epic Once Upon a Time in America on tour with them in 1985, which influenced the lyrics. The majority of the words had been written while McGowan was recovering from double pneumonia in Sweden during a late 1985 Scandinavian tour. And he later told the BBC, you get a lot of delirium and stuff. So I got quite a few good images out of that. That makes so much sense. Yeah. He would also say at one point of the writing, I sat down, opened the sherry, got the peanuts out and pretended it was Christmas. The peanuts? Is that a Christmas thing? Is that an Irish Christmas thing? Or is that a Shane I think it's this bar he was trying to get in the mood of being at a bar. You know, oh, like bar oh, peanuts okay. or something. And uh, McGowan would later tell The Guardian, every night I used to have another bash at nailing the lyrics, but I knew they weren't right. It is by far the most complicated song that I've ever been involved in writing and performing. The beauty of it is that it sounds really simple. And he would add, I identified with the man because I was a hustler, and I identified with the woman because I was a heavy drinker and a singer. I have been in hospitals on morphine drips, and I have been in drunk tanks on Christmas Eve. Uh, Jim Finer would tell The Guardian, I don't think the band was capable of playing the song as it needed to be played at that point. <laughs> Shane and I batted arrangements around for ages, and we'd periodically try and record it. He's a tireless and meticulous editor. So at the first uh, go-round, a practically-minded Elvis Costello suggested that the band just called the song Christmas Day in the Drunk Tank which McGowan hilariously also pointed out would limit the single's chances of success. So it's just such a great song title, though. It's so good. It is, yeah. Um, so according to player Jim Finer, or Banjo? So many. Anyway, Jim Finer was reading uh, J.P. Don Levy's 1973 novel, A Fairy Tale of New York, uh, concerning a grieving Irish-American's return home from Ireland to Manhattan. And McGowan actually went to him in person to ask if they could borrow the title. And I keep seeing this quote circulated on um, your lower tier trivia aggregation sites um, that suggests Don Levy was going to, he said something like, I could have sued the Pogues, but I, I, you know, shame is a friend, so I decided not to. I was never able to verify it. And also all the places that aggregated that attributed it to the garbage paper, the Daily Mail. So I don't really, I, I'm, I'm inclined, I'm, I mean, but if you see that out there, uh, 
Disregard. It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not giving it any more oxygen. Uh, also, in, in early 1986, the band actually made it to New York, which McGowan uh, cheerfully enthused was even more like New York than the movies. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's one, so cute. It's so, yeah, it's very sweet. Just like a kid in a candy store. The funniest thing about, one of the funniest things about this song to me is that the chorus, the boys in the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay. Um, that is false. <laughs> Galway Bay is a beloved Irish-American tune that enemy of the pod Bing Crosby had a hit with in 1948. <laughs> but the NYPD doesn't actually have a choir. The closest thing they, they have is a pipe and drum group, which plays the funerals and marches and, and parades and such. And they would later appear in the music video for Fairy Tale of New York. Um, but they were miming uh, and mouthing the words to the Mickey Mouse Club song, the theme song to the Mickey Mouse Club, because it was the only song that they all knew. They went, uh, okay, do you guys know Galway Bay? And they all the, the pipers and drummers and, and stuff were like, no. They were like, do you know Danny Boy? Do you all know Danny Boy? And they're like, no. They're like, all right, what song do you all know the words to? And they're like, the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> that was arrived at. So they, they, they sang that during the recording or filming, and then uh, it was slowed down in playback to actually match the tempo of the song and then the, and the video to actually match the tempos. There was a great bit the New York Times caught up with the, um, one of the guys who was in there this year and interviewed him about it. And he said uh, when they met the band for the first time, Shane McGowan went up to the conductor or the, the leader who, was, who would conduct with this great big staff um, to kind of mark the tempo. And he asked if he could see it and then immediately threw it 30 feet up in the air. And everyone kind of went, oh, God. <laughs> and then he caught it before it hit the ground. <laughs> it's just like, the, what a thing you do to, to a, a, an NYPD cop is like, hey, can I see that thing? And then just fling it up in the air. But at long last this year, the Epic Museum in Dublin formed an NYPD choir out of retired NYPD cops to record oh. uh, a version of uh, Galway Bay in tribute to McGowan. Oh, that's really yeah. sweet. <laughs> I have to say, as somebody who really wasn't all that familiar with the Pogues, aside from Shane McGowan as a colorful musical figure, and then obviously this song at Christmas time, I was really blown away by the outpouring of um, tributes in the wake of his death. And the really... You know, I mean, just like that, like you just mentioned about forming a, a group of a, a choir out of retired New York police officers to record a song in tribute to him. I mean, that is wild to me, the the esteem in which he's held by so many. I know yeah. that's for fans of the Pogues. I know that's the most obvious thing in the world. It's like someone saying, wow, but they, you know, I can't believe people love John Lennon that much. Yeah. It's like, I, mean, I know they, it's that, but they never really hit big in the U.S. is the thing. I think they they're they're. If, if your casual listener knows them, it's, it's from this song, you know, they, and, and that's why they're sort of consigned or, or um, shuffled into the punk category more than, more than anything. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We mentioned earlier that this song took something like two years to come together, and uh, part of this was because band member Cato Reardon left the band, and Steve Lillywhite took over from Elvis Costello as the producer of the song. I'm sad that Elvis Costello didn't get to produce this song. That would have been amazing. Did you ever mention Kate when you were interviewing him? No. Or like any of the Pogues? Yeah, I mean, they No. They I, I don't know out. about the Pogues. Yeah, I know. I, I mean... Yeah, Elvis Costello, his memoir is incredible. I mean, he's an amazing writer, obviously. Anyone who mm-hmm. reads his lyrics knows that. But yeah, the man is one of the most musically minded. His musical knowledge is probably the broadest of anyone, certainly of anyone I've ever interviewed, mm-hmm. uh, ever. I mean, just anyone I know. It, it's pretty amazing, yeah. Um, where are we? Oh, a new demo of Fairy Tale of New York was recorded at London's Abbey Road Studios, my beloved Abbey Road Studios. It all goes back to the Beatles in March 1987, with Shane McGowan singing both the male and female roles. But the master take would eventually be recorded during a sweltering July session, Christmas in July. The two parts of the song, Finer's beautiful, poignant, melodic theme and McGowan's dialogues, uh, were giving the band, as you say, hell as they attempted to record them live. So Lily White made the classic producer decision of just having them record these two parts separately and join them with an edit, much like George Martin did for the Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever, probably in the same studio at Abbey Road. It's, I mean, it's tricky. Even the live performance that we mentioned earlier with um, Glenn Hansen covering the song at Shane's funeral, like he is very much 
dictating tempo and transitions with his guitar because it's yeah. such a weird lurching. It, it, it approximates the feeling of a drunken pub sing along. <laughs> yeah. Which is great for great for art, less good for practically recording. <laughs> That's funny. I, I heard the rhythm as like two drunks out of a bar, arms around each other, yeah. marching down the street, trying yeah, to keep exactly. each other up. <laughs> yeah. Lily White later told The Guardian, it was a beautiful time. I got the pogues when they were really firing and before too much craziness got involved. As long as I got them early in the day, it was great. There's a list. Yeah, right. Uh, Horns and Strings were recorded at Townhouse Studios on the last day of recording of what would become the band's third album, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. That album title track, by the way, is one of my favorite songs of all time. It is such a perfect distillation of the pogues. It's like this breakneck tempo country punk song. Ah, oh, so good. Um, so James Fearnley, the accordion player, sketched out a melodic idea, and that was later brought to full, uh, arranged fully by Fiocra Tench. He is credited with string arrangements on the Boomtown Rats' I Don't Like Mondays. Oh. Yeah, how about that? McGowan supposedly wanted the orchestra to interpolate a, a chunk of the melody from Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, but the band's guitarist, Phil Chevron, talked him out of it. Good call, Phil. Yeah. Uh, so the nearly finished track was presented to Lily White for McCold to take a stab at. She spent hours on the phrasing, and the band was mostly impressed by the result, though Lily White would later tell The Guardian, to be honest, they weren't 100% convinced that Kiersey was the right person. Uh, McGowan differs, recalling, I was madly in love with Kiersey from the first time I saw her on Top of the Pops. She was a genius in her own right, and she was a better producer than he was. <laughs> she could make a song her own, and she made Fairy Tale her own. And McGowan was so impressed that he decided to re-record his own vocals. But the pair's chemistry on that song is entirely artificial, really. They were never in the same room together during the recording process. Oh, that makes me sad. I really don't like that. I mean, they oh. performed it live together. But yeah, it was all remote sessions, at least for their, for their different parts. And I went through this whole Sound on Sound article about the making of, of If I Should Fall From Grace With God. I was hoping for some really absurd stories. But actually, most of that article was concerned about how the sort of technical difficulties of um, recording this band uh, because of all their instruments. The guy who engineered the session, Chris Dickey, said that the group was pretty productive, actually. He said, during the first week of the Fall from Grace sessions, we recorded 10 backing tracks. On the Saturday night, management, friends, and road crew all showed up to the studio, and we had a bigger party than any end-of-album bash we'd ever had there. And that was just the end of the first week. Uh <laughs> Yeah, they, he just talks about how like they had all these acoustic instruments in the studio and they all kind of had to be isolated separately. Um, and the instruments on that record include tin whistle, accordion, piano, mandolin, dulcimer, cello, banjo, saxophone, uh, a traditional lute uh, in Irish music called a cittern, concertina, assorted percussion instruments ranging from traditional Irish frame drums, hand drums, to spoons. Also, everyone uh, sang. And there is an additional credit for the Pogues Choir, on the record, which was made up of everyone from Lily White to the band's manager, Frank Murray, to quote Brian Sheridan from The Off License, which I believe is a reference to a bookie, and also the man from The Indian Takeaway is credited with being part of the Pogues Choir, <laughs> which I assume meant they were getting delivery and just invited this guy in to do backing vocals with them. Um, Dickie also noted that McGowan's headphone mix for recording was the loudest of anyone I've recorded and consisted mostly of the kick drum, the bass guitar, and his own vocals. And it was so loud that they had to be concerned about 
the mix from the headphones bleeding into his vocal mic, particularly when he was recording to scratch tracks that were going to be re-recorded later. I just think that's funny. Though the full length, If I Should Fall from Grace with God, wouldn't be released until 1988, the decision was wisely made to release Fairy Tale of New York as a single, and the video was duly drummed up in New York, shot during Thanksgiving week. A young Matt Dillon plays the NYPD officer who arrests McGowan, but as a huge fan of the Pogues, who'd actually met McGowan the year before in 1986 when the band first came to the city, Matt Dillon was too nervous to really give him the old NYPD brutality. And McGowan, freezing cold in an actual Lower East Side police station cell, snapped at him, just kick the shit out of me and throw me in the cell, and then we can be warm. <laughs> what a charmer. <laughs> <laughs> the black and white segments of McGowan and McCall were modeled on a BBC documentary about Billie Holiday. There was actually a point of contention, though, for keyboardist Jim Fernley. Fernley? 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 I'm the worst Bostonian. I can't say any of these names that I've definitely seen as a kid. Those are his hands playing the piano, but he's wearing McGowan's rings to preserve the illusion that it's him. <laughs> He said, he told The Guardian years later, I'm the f***ing piano player and I wanted people to know that. It was absolutely humiliating, but it looks better. You have to find your proper place for the benefit of the project. Sad for him, but, uh, you know, you gotta find your proper place. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> Fairy Tale of New York was released on November 23rd, 1987. The song has never been the UK number one at Christmas, or ever. Uh, it was kept at number two on its original release by the Pet Shop Boys cover of Always On My Mind, causing McGowan to supposedly quip, we were beaten by two queens and a drum machine, which is going to sound so much worse after I get to this next bit. Uh, the big elephant in the room that we've been dodging is the hard F slur that McCall's character calls McGowan's at one point. Um, and very stupidly, most of the early controversy of this song centered around the use of the word arse because the homophobic slur was considered okay, arse was not. Various channels of the BBC aired censored versions, or didn't, and then reversed their censoring. MTV UK bleeped both, both uh, words. The debate about it kicked up annually, um, seemingly, and the, one of the bigger ones was in 2018, uh, when two broadcasters who were working for RTE asked the company to censor the song, and the company refused. And McGowan made, I think, one of his only public statements about it at the time, saying, the word was used by the character because it fitted with the way she would speak with and with her character. She is not supposed to be a nice person or even a wholesome person. She's a woman of a certain generation at a certain time in history, and she is down on her luck and desperate. Her dialogue is as accurate as I could make it, but she is not intended to offend. She is just supposed to be an authentic character, and not all characters in songs and stories are angels, or even decent and respectable. Sometimes characters and songs and stories have to be evil or nasty to tell the story effectively. If people don't understand that I was trying to accurately portray the character as authentically as possible, then I am absolutely fine with them bleeping the word. But I don't want to get into an argument. I think that is a, a, fair, a great nuanced take from him. Yeah. What do you think? No, I agree. I mean, it's, it's funny. Norman Lear died a few days before recording this, and I was revisiting a lot of um, his television work from the 70s on the family and the Jeffersons specifically and their takes on um, the way that they would portray very offensive characters as a way to make a point. 
I know these days that's seen as such an old, tired trope, and we mm-hmm. shouldn't be giving more air to these harmful words. But considering the time that the song was made in the late 80s, I think that was probably a more legitimate excuse then uh, that you were trying to make a point about a character. And 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 yeah, that's interesting to me. It's an interesting, and I think that's makes sense at the time. I don't think it's something that... Yeah, the, the whole I think it would cause more of a distraction now, I think, yeah. if you were to make a song now and put that word in. I mean, to me, the debate always comes down to like, it's not so much about like, oh, they're a woman of their time or like whatever, but it comes down to me like, what would the character do? What does this yeah. make sense for the story? And, and I think recently I saw a lot of this come up with um, uh, Otessa Moshfeg, the, uh, the novelist who wrote, um, her most famous one is uh, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, but uh, there's a movie being made of, of her novel, Eileen, uh, or, or a movie coming out, I should say. And, um, all of her characters are repugnant, awful, mm. awful human beings. Um, and, you know, to the point where it can get a little tiresome, but, you know, she's trying to do that as, as her literary device and part of her voice and the stories that she wants to write. And I do think that there is a germ of that that has to be protected. Otherwise, you know, you don't get a lot of great works of art and, Someone's probably going to twist these words and make me have to be a homophobe. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think you gotta, you gotta walk that line and say, I'm trying to paint a character and this goes into making them a nuanced, realized vision. I mean, it's interesting to me, and this may be too much of a tangent. I remember in screenwriting school in like 2006, 2007, 2008, all the professors saying, you know, you need a likable protagonist, a likable protagonist, and you do things to you need to have them be flawed in some way so that they can grow, but you need them to still be to, to redeem them somehow and make them likable. And I, and I feel like these days, especially with shows, with the prestige dramas, things like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, yeah. uh, people that, and I noticed it really on Succession, where every single character is unlikable <laughs> to the point where it was. I mean, I loved Succession, but there were times when it was tiresome because they were so just detestable, all of them. Yeah. And it wasn't like, I mean, I, I have a whole theory about how Succession was basically arrested development with the, with the humor dialed down. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, they are. It's true. We, we interviewed Jason Bateman for a show I'm working on, and I wanted to ask him that, but I chickened out. I know, I know. But think about it. I mean, you've got like the Jason Bateman character, Michael, is uh is Kendall. He's like the good son that worked his ass. I, I haven't watched company. Succession. I, oh, I work for the right. I work I work for the Murdochs. I, I know it's good. I just have no interest of, in seeing them fictionalized. Okay. Uh, I understand. No, but it's just interesting to me. And I don't know if if we as an audience have changed or if we've just become accustomed to it by characters that went through sort of an evil transformation like Walter White in Breaking Bad. But yeah, it's interesting to me how unlikable characters have been embraced in culture in recent years. I feel like I have nothing more to, I have nothing else to say about that. I yield my time. You. <laughs> uh, the seemingly annual debate kicked up again in 2020 with the BBC again announced that Radio 1 would play a censored version while Radio 2 would play the original. And Presenters for their channel Six Music would decide each for themselves which version to play. It was apparently Nick Cave's turn to weigh in next. He drew the short straw and he accused the BBC of mutilating and stripping the song of its value. 
The funniest part, though, and the only reason I bring this up again of the 2020 flap is when this British troll right wing dork, uh, an ex actor named Lawrence Fox, attempted to surf the controversy for attention, trying to get the original version to chart and tweeting defund the BBC. And the quote, <laughs> the the Pogue's Twitter account responded, "Fuck off, you little heron volk." <laughs> Would you like to tell the good listeners what heron volk means? Ah, uh, they can Google that one. <laughs> Fairytale New York spent five weeks at the top of the Irish charts, which McGowan said mattered to him more than not making number one in England. Various re-releases went as high as number three, and it's re-entered the top 75 every December since 2005, making the top 20 on 20 separate occasions and the top 10 on 10. You made that up. There's no way those numbers lined up like that. <laughs> With its 21 visits to the chart to date, it's totaled 114 weeks on the official UK Top 75, making it the sixth most charted song of all time. Various polls by various publications named it the UK's favorite Christmas song at different points. According to the British music licensing body PPL, it's become the most popular Christmas song of the 21st century in the UK. Following McGowan's death in 2023, the song returned to number one on the Irish singles chart on the same day as McGowan's funeral and 36 years after it first topped the charts in Ireland. Supposedly, the song was earning the band about £470,000 per year in royalties as of 2016, which was, as you say, pretty, pretty, pretty good. Wonderful Christmas time, I'm now contractually obliged to mention, earns Paul McCartney, I think, upwards of three quarters of a million pounds a year, or maybe three quarters of a million dollars a year. How nice for him. <laughs> but the song and the Pogues, as you've mentioned earlier, never really got its due in the States. It's never reached the Hot 100, only charting on Billboard's holiday digital song sales, peaking at number 22 in 2011, though it's possible that maybe McGowan's death will change that this year? I don't know. Brenda Lee will be blocking the top spot. I think. Yeah, that's true. Um, this is her so year, damn it. <laughs> There's a good chance that this is the first song you ever heard. It came out like two weeks after you were born in November uh, 87. That's true. Yeah, I don't know that it would have gotten air wouldn't have permeated, there, but yeah. yeah. But it would explain a lot. Uh, unfortunately, the success of Fairy Tale caused a number of fissures within the Pogue to worsen. Uh, for starters, despite the reputation, most of them were by this point in their career married with children and <gasps> gasp, no longer drinking through their shows. Uh, McGowan, however, was going the opposite route. He had always abused drugs along with this heroic intake of booze. Uh, there's one famous story about him being in Wellington, New Zealand, taking a bunch of speed and hearing the voices of Maori telling him to uh, paint his face and chest blue and run around the hotel. But now he was oscillating between heroin and prodigious amounts of LSD that induced, for example, long conversations between Shane and one of his heroes, Jimi Hendrix. Those don't really go together. <laughs> heroin, drugs, LSD, yeah. and yeah, I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's toothpaste and orange juice. Yeah, and people said that it was like it was really around. It. I think it really was the success of this that that cracked him because uh, people said the heroin use got a lot worse. And it, it, I read a lot of very interesting interviews where they were, where you know, they said that he was essentially a shy person and and kind of made it into the frontman role against sort of his wishes because they all wrote and um, you know they were all sort of democratically lined up along the front of the stage together, um, but. 
because he was Shane, uh, he sort of was christened the front man and, and he always disagreed with that. And yeah, I think the drugs were like the, the bad drugs, the really bad drugs were an attempt to, to cope with this. And particularly the band's touring schedule, which had always been pretty uh, hard, but then it increased dramatically after the success of Fairy Tale. Um, and, and the book, A Drink with Shane McGowan, which is a series of interviews and reminiscences <laughs> that he assembled with his wife, Victoria Mary Clark, he explained, I was already pissed off to f with touring by the time we did Fairy Tale to New York. What a wonderful turn of phrase. I gradually started hating touring. I didn't notice it was happening until it was too late. And he continued, I kept asking for a year off. We had to tour after Fairy Tale, yeah, but we didn't have to tour for four f***ing years after it. Jesus. McGowan became increasingly unreliable live. He wasn't allowed to board a flight at Heathrow Airport when the group was supposed to fly over and open for Bob Dylan in San Francisco in 1989, and subsequently the band performed without him. I assume he was too drunk to fly. Yeah, I mean, I think he was just too messed up and they wouldn't let him on the plane. Uh, he, was, oh. he was supposedly really bad on really bad on heroin around this time. There's a great um, documentary called Shane McGowan, A Crock of Gold by uh, Julian Temple, I think. <laughs> That's and, a great uh, name. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and everyone unanimously admits that this is when he was getting too much into heroin. Ultimately, the Pogues ended up firing Shane McGowan in 1991 during a tour in Tokyo. His response? What took you so long? Oh, that's so Irish. Jesus Christ. It's so <laughs> devastatingly self-aware. Yeah. And so, so sad and so resigned. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, that hurts so much. But he formed a new band, The Popes, which is really funny. That's it such is. a great name for so many reasons. <laughs> and turned in some respectable records. But by and large, the rest of his life was mostly occupied with just being, as you write, Shane f***ing McGowan. And when he finally got his teeth fixed in 2015, it was national news. Yeah, actually, I even remember seeing that, and I apparently yeah. knew he was. Yeah. The Pogues reunited a few times, grew to hate each other again, McGowan quipped, and he sporadically made music or did one-off shows. Interestingly enough, Sinead O'Connor once reported him to the police for drug possession after finding him passed out on his floor. Although pissed at O'Connor at first, McGowan later thanked her, saying that the incident helped him kick heroin. Yeah, I, I haven't listened to much of the Popes. I think it goes back to that kind of uh, pub rock sort of um, tradition that the his first band was. Um, yeah, I, I you know I really wanted to um, talk about how he kept bravely making music and this that and the other thing, but it, it you know he did record, he did do these little shows, but it really did seem like he he just kind of coasted into legend status throughout the throughout the nineties and two thousands and kind of parked there. Um, which as, you know, as hard living Irishmen of a certain age, yeah, should you um, know, as they're wont to do, yeah, as their 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 legend carries them through their twilight years. Sadly, uh, he did live to see John Bon Jovi's cover of Fairy Tale, in which <laughs> Bon Jovi sings both parts. Um, although he probably missed Travis and Jason Kelsey's cover uh, entitled "Fairy Tale of Philadelphia." Jay Leno voice. Did you hear about this? Did you guys hear about this? No. Uh, that's all. That's all you get. I guess they, they're musical. One of them is musical. I don't care. They've got cars, biggest bars. they got rivers of gold. 
But the wind goes right through you, no place for the old. When you first took my hand on a cold Christmas Eve, you promised me Frog Street was waiting for me. You were handsome, you were pretty, you're the king of South Philly. When the band finished playing, they howled out for more. The letters were swinging, all the drums they were singing. We fought on a corner, then danced through the night. I hate that. Yeah, I went on way. I'm not allowed to say I hate that, am I? Because I'm gonna have God knows how many Swifties. I don't know if their love for her extends to protecting to him. all of his output. He does seem to be one of the brick dumbest people alive. Like uh, his Twitter, the, yeah, his Twitter and the quotes circulating from that podcast that he has is just like, yeah, man, <laughs> you picked the right career. Um. <laughs> He probably missed that one because he had been hospitalized fighting viral encephalitis for most of the past year. Um, he had been wheelchair bound since 2015, since he fell exiting a recording studio and he broke his pelvis. Shane McGowan, by the way, not the one. Not the Travis. Brothers. Yeah, not Travis Kelsey. Um, he broke his knee in 2021 after falling at his home. There was this running bit that all the journalists used to mention about how he was just like constantly uh, injured by fall falls during the Pogue's heyday, which... If you're stumble drunk for the better part of a decade, then yeah, you're you're gonna fall a lot. Uh, but he did. There was an upside to one of these. He did at least detox completely during his 215 hospitalization, and this supposedly continued for years. And uh, he died in November of this year. I um I was just telling someone about this. I uh, I just bought a an ashtray with um a playing card spade on it, and I was paying for it, and like we. I started talking with the cashier about Lemmy from Motorhead because that was their symbol. And I, I remember interviewing him a couple months before he died. And he uh, he was one of several rock luminaries who towards the end of their life in a nod to health switched from Jack and Coke to orange juice and vodka <laughs> um, because it was supposedly healthier. And I remember yeah. Lemmy being very proud telling me that. <laughs> I don't know what there there was a reason why that came into my head. I don't actually remember why. And forcible detox because you've been hospitalized for falling down and breaking your knee. Yeah, well that yeah, that'll do it. I guess that'll do yeah. it. And Lemmy also died in late 2015, so maybe that was what it was. Anyway, oh, sure. Kirsty McColl had a much stranger postscript to Fairy Tale of New York. Well, she credited performing the single with the Pogues around this time with helping her temporarily overcome her stage fright, she continued to have a checkered career with a few modest hits, but no real consistency. By the mid-90s, she was considering abandoning music altogether, but found herself enamored of Latin music, particularly Cuban music. After visiting there in 1992, she started taking Spanish lessons and playing Cuban solidarity concerts. She started learning Portuguese as well, eventually visiting Brazil, and her passion eventually turned into the album Tropical Brainstorm, which was her last, a critical hit that featured the minor hit In These Shoes, which appeared on an episode of Sex in the City. This is where it gets really sad. In the year 2000, McColl, in the year 2000, McColl took a holiday to Cozumel, Mexico with her sons and her boyfriend, musician James Knight, ostensibly to help one of her sons recover from the death of his friend. On December 18th, 2000, she and her sons went diving at a reef in the National Marine Park of Cozumel in an area where watercraft were banned. Surfacing from a dive, McColl saw that a powerboat had entered the restricted area and was headed towards her 15-year-old son, Jamie. She was able to push him out of the way but was struck and run over by the powerboat, which killed her instantly. Her body was sent back to the UK where she was cremated after a funeral service. Yeah. 
Uh, and it, it gets worse. <laughs> the twist to this is that aboard the powerboat was Guillermo Gonzalez Nova, who is a multimillionaire. <laughs> Gasp! The, he's the multimillionaire president of the Mexican grocery store chain Comercial Mexicana. Along with members of his family, the powerboat was owned by his brother who founded the chain. A boat hand named Jose Senyam uh, testified that he was in control of the boat at the time, but eyewitnesses refuted this and also said that the boat was traveling much faster than the one knot he said he was going at the time. Um, under what I consider to be a sort of insane Mexican law, he was allowed to pay the equivalent of $90 in lieu of serving his nearly three-year sentence, and he also paid about $2,150 in restitution to McColl's family, a figure that was decided upon by his wages. Um, some people who spoke to him after this said that he admitted to them that he was paid by the family to become the fall guy. And McColl's family subsequently launched the Justice for Kirstie campaign, which re-released versions of fairy tale would benefit. And they repeatedly appealed to the Mexican government and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the case gained an increasing amount of public attention over the years. There was a release of a BBC documentary called Who Killed Kirsty McColl in 2004. But, son of a bitch. In February of 2006, Bono addressed the incident at a YouTube concert in Mexico. After which the Mexican government released a statement saying that it would take action. And by May of 2006... Emilio Cortez Ramirez, a federal prosecutor in Cozumel, was found liable for breach of authority in his handling of McColl's case. I can't believe it took Bono. In was August, Kier Kiersey was Irish, right? Kiersey? Uh, yeah. No, she was English. I was using on them. I was going to say, it took, it took the biggest Irish musician ever. Yeah, no, uh, it, I think it was because of the Lily White thing and because Joshua Tree. But it is just so uh, funny yeah. that like the, the family was putting all this money towards going through the actual legal actions and Bono just went on one of his Bono rants or type tangents at a concert. And then they were like, oh, yeah. oh God. okay, we got to get our stuff together. And they offered this litigator up as a, a sacrificial lamb. Uh, in August of 2009, Carlos Gonzalez Nova, the brother of Guillermo Gonzalez, Nova died at 92. By December of that year, the Justice for Kirstie campaign issued a statement that the campaign is being terminated since it was successful in achieving most of its aims, and its remaining funds were divided between two charities uh, in Kirstie's memory. In the end, as accordionist James Fearnley once said, fairy tale went off and inhabited its own planet. It is the Christmas song for people who may hate Christmas, one of the only modern classics to be added to the canon. And people might find it depressing, but I've always loved the grace note uh, that changes the latter choruses of the song from the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay to the NYPD choir still singing Galway Bay. Because to me, it implies the sense of renewal as the holidays churn into the new year. As long as they're still singing and the bells keep ringing, there's hope that we can change for the better. The impetus for me to pitch this episode was, as Jordan mentioned earlier, video from Shane McGowan's funeral, where Glenn Hansard sang a version of the song, and his family, uh, Shane's family, was up dancing in the aisles of the church. And that is the defining takeaway of Fairy Tale of New York for me. Uh, the last line, can't make it all alone. I've built my dreams around you. Uh, I'd like to paraphrase that as, it's all a bit sh isn't it? <laughs> But we've got each other. 
don't we? Yes, we do. Hi, Heigl. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Rontag. We'll catch you next time. Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl, with original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.